I'm Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team. We're a software tool that helps managers avoid becoming a bad boss. And today on The Heartbeat, I am truly honored to have a super special guest on the show. I have Camille Fournier, who is the managing director of Two Sigma, uh, this investment hedge firm uh, that uses technology as a part of their platform and their investments. But Camille is probably best known for writing this amazing book, which if you haven't picked up, I mean, you can see my little (laughs) tabs and notes. It's called The Manager's Path, A Guide for Tech Leaders Navigating Growth and Change. Prior to this, I was telling Camille that we've got this online leadership community called The Water Cooler with thousands of managers. And Camille's book is honestly one of the most recommended books amongst managers. Uh, I, you know, I never stop hearing about it. And for good reason, there's so many things I want to ask you about. So we'll talk about that. And Camille was also, this is pretty notable, formerly the CTO for Rent the Runway as well. So no shortage of experience and wisdom. So excited to chat with you today, Camille, and ask you this one question about leadership. Okay, let's hear it. You ready? Okay. So the question that I've been dying to ask you is, what's one thing, or it could be several things, that you wish you would have known earlier as a leader? Oh, there's so many things. (laughs) Yeah, you wrote a book about it, pretty much. (laughs) Certainly one thing, I think, is that just because you are in a management position and a leadership position and a senior leadership position, generally speaking, you still can't tell people what to do. If the idea is that if I just become, you know, a senior enough leader, if I just get to a certain point, uh, you know, in the in my career point in my, my leadership track, I will be able to control everything and make everything go and happen the way that I want it to happen. That's not true. It's totally not. It's like not even like not true. It's like almost the opposite of true. <laughs> you, you like get less control the more senior you become. Uh, certainly, for what control you have is so much more indirect than I think you can ever possibly expect. You know, as someone who's earlier in their career. So a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, you should not go into management if you." want to go into management only because you want to control things or, or whatever, mm-hmm. which I think is true. But I also think there, there are good people who go into management for that reason. I just think that you will kind of make a lot of mistakes early on if that's the reason that you go into management, uh, because you'll, you'll be fighting this idea that like you can just command and control your team, hmm. that your job is like telling people what to do, that you know, once you have all these people reporting to you, you control their work, you control what they're focused on, you control what they're thinking about. And therefore, they, you know, enact your will. And, you know, I think what people find who have that belief when they go into management uh, very Mm -hmm. quickly is that that's, that's not true. And so then a lot of people say, well, okay, that wasn't true when I was a line manager. But then when I'm like a director of engineering, it will be more true, because I'll be able to get this whole organization, you know, I, I can't quite control my team, but I can't control them because this other team is making their lives hard or their product is right. making them hard. Uh, so I just need to go like one level up and then I'll have more people under me and then I control them better. And oh no, I just need right. to go one more level up. And then I... If only, if only, yeah. And then once I'm an executive, like people will have to listen to me. And it's just like, it just never actually comes true. In fact, the more senior you, you go, the less individual control you have over any one thing and the more... Your, your job is really nudging things into place and kind of 
You can very, very occasionally exert perhaps a veto power to stop something from happening, but it's very hard to force something to happen. So yeah, that's, I guess, you know, maybe one thing. Yeah, I, oh my goodness, I'm just, I'm over here, you know, for folks who are listening to this via just the podcast, you know, I'm over here smiling and kind of laughing because, I I mean, it's a common misperception. How could it not be, right? It's like, oh, I have more people reporting to me. My job description includes more things. I have access to influencing more stakeholders. Why wouldn't control increase, right? I think it's a very common illusion. And what I think is so counterintuitive about what you shared is you actually said that it's almost the opposite. It's almost like the inverse is true. For you, Camille, when did you realize this in your career? Is this something that you fortunately didn't have to sort of suffer firsthand learning? Or is it something that you sort of learned through the school of hard docs? Or yeah, I'm curious, when did you when did this realization happen for you? I mean, I would say it was like slowly over time. Yes. Yeah, I would say that I think when I started managing, I expected to have a lot more ability to control things. And I I had to spend quite a while kind of learning how learning that that wasn't true in various ways. So for me, I think sometimes it was like, well, my team is just not good enough, for example, or they just don't know, know a certain thing. They don't know how to do a certain thing. And I just need to teach them how to do a certain thing. And then they'll be able to do things the way that I want them done. That's one way this is presented for me is like the team, I don't want to say not good enough. They just like, they don't know, right? They've never experienced this. They've never worked in a system like sure. this. So if they just know and I just teach them, then they will do things my way. Not true. I also think I've gone through the phases of like, well, if I just had the, the ability to, to kind of control more things, more people, more parts of the organization, I could align things so that people were really working in this way that I think is most effective or focus on things that I think are most important. Not really true. Okay, you know, if I become, you know, an executive, then people will really have to listen to me and they'll really have to do things my way. Sure. In some ways, this is a lesson I'm still learning. Hmm. You know, for better or worse, like part of the reason I got into management was that I like making things happen. Sure. I, I am not a person who got into management purely because I love the people side of things. And I love thinking about people and their, their careers. I do like that stuff. I, you know, I don't want to pretend like that's not part of it, but I didn't get into management purely for people reasons. I really did get into it because I'm interested in making teams effective and delivering mm. to a business and, you know, uh, getting things done. Even to this day, like sometimes I find myself falling back on why won't they do things the way I want them? If I just, you know, was in a more senior position, I could force things through, I could force, you know, the company to do things this way. And, you know, I have to like, remind myself, like, no, you really, that does that work? That like, just like really doesn't work. You watch your boss. And, you know, he doesn't do that for a reason. And the few cases he does, he is very thoughtful about what he's doing that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it still doesn't work. And so like, and he's really good he's yeah. this for longer than you have. So, you know, I think that that's a lesson I'm just constantly learning. Uh, yeah, I think so many folks can relate to that, Camille, in the sense that I think most people get into management because they want to get things done. Right. Like I, I see that as, 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 a, as a good thing. You know, I, that's why I've sort of, you know, I, I got into it for sure. I mean, I, I like you said, I, I enjoy the people stuff. It's also kind of what I do for a living. Right. But um, the real sort of intrinsic reward or value is like, oh my God, you know, we were able to accomplish something that I couldn't have accomplished alone. And so almost, you know, 
It's funny how that unintentionally sort of handicaps us in our ability to think more thoughtfully, maybe about how to actually get the results that we want. It's interesting. Like I always find it so perplexing. And like, I feel flabbergasted sometimes because I'm like, I want the result to happen. And it's like, the more you want the result to happen, it's like the more you end up doing all these things that aren't really helping the result to happen. So yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm wondering then for all the things that we do get hooked on as leaders of thinking, okay, when I get that next promotion, when I'm managing more people, when I'm more senior, if that doesn't guarantee us more control, if greater scope and greater sort of positional authority doesn't guarantee us better outcomes and a more effective team, what does? Like, how should a manager be approached? And you mentioned nudging, you talk about that in your book. But what is then the real role of the manager if it's not, quote, unquote, command and control and tell you what to do? And oh, I'll just teach everyone to do it my way. And then everyone will just do it my way. What is what's the alternative? I, mean, I think there's a few things. And it's actually taken me a long time to come around on these things. Some of them you won't you won't find in my book, because they're things I'm still coming around on. Hmm. So what like one of the things that I think I'm coming around on more and more over time I hate to say it. It's about hiring and getting the right people in the door in the first place. Uh, and I, I say yes. I hate to say it because like I'm not very good at recruiting. It's not one of my strengths. I don't cover it in the book because the, I find the whole process of interviewing and, and recruiting to be kind of exhausting. It's just not my favorite thing. But I have started to realize more and more that life is a lot easier when you hire people who you're on a pretty good wavelength with mm -hmm. and share a lot of your values already and that you trust to do things that you care a lot about and have a lot of opinions about. You trust them to take those things and do the right thing. Mm. So I actually think like that is, you know, probably more important, especially the more senior you get in leadership than I probably gave it credit for even when I was writing the book. Um, because I, yeah. because it a little bit, you know, it a little bit conflicts with my also, you know, strongly held belief that people can grow hmm. and change and learn. And I'm a very growth mindset kind of person, but you sure. know, I, I do kind of appreciate why a lot of people are really obsessed with hiring and, and recruiting and how you get great people in the door in the first place. And, and it's really about like, are you finding people who are, you know, who are kind of on your wavelength, who you do truly, can, you can really feel comfortable trusting um, because that's yes. one of the important ways that you really extend that influence. The other thing is, I think, really, there is just a lot of things are about the cultural norms that you create and reinforce and, you know, what you reward and what you don't reward. Yep. And, you know, I think that's the other big thing that you can do. And again, you know, when you start doing this, you very quickly realize the limits of this and how slowly it works. But, you know, you can change a group and you can get them to focus on new things by really changing the cultural values of that group. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way you change the cultural values of that group, among other things, is that you actually set goals against those values that you reward. So, mm. um, you know, I run um, big platform infrastructure teams. That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing here at Two Sigma. And uh, one of the things that I feel very strongly infrastructure teams should do well is build operable systems and, you know, think about uh, operational excellence, right? How are you are you actually yes. thinking about the way that system is going to run in production? Um, you know, how is it going to scale? How are you going to respond to incidents, things like that? So, you know, one of the things that I did when I came in was set goals around operational excellence. And, mm -hmm. you know, because that wasn't a like strongly held value throughout the whole organization that I've managed. 
Right. And, you know, it's been two years and things are definitely better. The team, you know, thinks about that a lot more than they did when I joined. Um, But it's still like a work in progress. And, you know, so it's like, do I have control? Yes. In a sense that like I can, you know, say we're going to think about operational excellence. We're going to set OKRs around it. Every team's going to do something along these lines. But I can't just say you have to operate your systems better, everyone. And I want to see it happen now, 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 now. Like, no, two years in, we're still we're still doing it. We're still working on it because it's a process. It's not a, you know, it's not uh, snapping your fingers and all of a sudden people hear you say something right they, and they do it. Right. I, a million things I want to like dig into and ask you about. I mean, for the first part, okay, about hiring and sort of your, I mean, like you said, it's something you didn't cover in the book. I mean, there are a lot of books, obviously, that have been written about it. It could be its own separate book in many ways. So totally understandable that you would leave it out. It reminded me of something that, you know, if anyone's read, you know, Good to Great, right? Jim Collins, really famous manager book. He talks about this concept, right? Getting the right people on the bus before figuring out where the bus even needs to go. Because to your point, and, you know, I don't think this is mutually exclusive from the fact that people can grow and change and growth mindset, right? But to the point that that process is a lot easier and uh, more productive because everyone will change you know, you're going to change, I'm going to change, like everyone is naturally going to change. But that change is more productive and, and more aligned if you can get synced up on what those what those goal or what those values are. And then which leads to the second thing of your, I think, wonderful wisdom around the application of values, because I think it's so easy to go into either a hiring process or to become the new manager in a team and say, okay, here are the five or six values that we are going to execute on. And like you said, snap of the fingers. All right, here we go. Like, Operational excellence. Where is it? Is it happening? Right? Uh, so tempting yeah. to do that. So I love your examples of, of actually figuring out how to apply those values. One question I had is, how do you figure out what those values are? And what are the right values? So I think there's there's two things you have to consider. So first of all, um, assuming you're not a founder, your company has values. They may be written down. They may not be written down. Sure. Aligning yourself with the values of the company is pretty important. Because if you try to set up values for your team and they are really not well aligned with the values of the company, you're setting yourself up for failure. Right. I think it is unreasonable to expect that you're going to be able to be successful if you don't echo the things that the company just... In companies, whether they have them written down or not, they just have things in their DNA that are the way the company is. You know, they came from the founders or the early executives or who knows what, but like, you know, my observation in every company I've ever worked in, people who get the values explicitly or implicitly are more successful. Teams that are more well aligned to the values do better, are more rewarded. It's just, so first of all, like know the values of the company. Also, I think, you know, your job as a leader is to understand what's really important for your team. And so to some extent, you do get to set the culture yourself a little bit, right? So, right. you know, is operational excellence of two sigma wide value. No, I mean, that's way too specific a value, I think, for a company like this. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. Sure. But operational excellence needs to be an added value for an engineering team that is operating large scale software. That's just, you know, then this is a little bit of, of a case of like, I was hired in to make this team great. It is one of my yes. values and something that I believe strongly. And the team will be more successful the more that I can get them aligned to my values. And I will be more successful the more I can get them aligned to my values, like, you know, goes both ways. So I do think that, you know, you are allowed to, as a leader, have some degree of, you know, opinion. You hopefully have been hired to do whatever job you're, sure. you're, you're in right. because people trust your instincts. And 
you know, so the goal is to not stray far away from the company values, but understand the things that you believe are, you know, fundamental drivers for excellence in whatever it is that you're leading, and then mm-hmm. make those explicit. Yes, I love that. I, I hope folks who are, are listening or watching this are are writing <laughs> writing that down because I think um, I think a common pitfall is to just not be intentional, right? Or to be extremely vague. Like I think actually the specificity of operational excellence, you know, to your point, you're like, well, maybe it's too specific to be company-wide, but team-wide, the specificity and also to your point of actually mapping out what are the observable behaviors for what operational excellence looks like? Like what is that actually is is the important piece because, you know, values only mean anything when they're when they're lived out, when they're acted on, when people are doing something tangible, you know, about them. Yeah. So Camille, here's the thing. I could literally talk to you for hours. I have millions of questions, truly, of things written down. One of the things I did want to talk to you about that you mentioned in your book that was maybe slightly referenced earlier was this idea of managers ultimately needing to really understand what is important versus urgent. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that and sort of your opinion and philosophy of like why that's important, how that informs how you make decisions, how you spend your time, how you delegate as a manager. Yeah, I think this is like, a you know, there's a lifelong pursuit in figuring out what to focus on at any time. Yes. First of all, you have to have free time. So if literally every second of every day is completely scheduled, you will never be able to figure out what's important and what's urgent because your whole life is urgent. Hmm. And that's like not entirely true, right? But like like one-on-ones in some sense are like both important and urgent, right? Like you have to do them. You have to do them regularly. They're really important. Yes. And if you're not doing them, it's very urgent that you do. <laughs> so yes, it's very easy for managers to get into a cycle of reactivity where your whole life is scheduled in meetings. You're just, you go to a meeting and you react to whatever's happening in that meeting. And especially the more senior you get, the more this happens, right? Because like nobody really yes. expects you to come prepared to the meeting. You're allowed to just like come to the meeting and react. That's okay for a senior manager. Like, and you know, I spend a lot of my time doing that. It's like, look, I'm, I'm here to react. And I'm here because people trust that my reactions are going to guide the conversation in the right way or, exactly. you know, whatever, like that's, that's sort of my job. Yep. But that reactivity can just turn into your whole life. And if you don't have any time that's kind of unscheduled for reflection um, and for pulling together all the threads that you've been hearing about and saying, wait a minute, like I heard from three different people about something that nobody's really thinking fully about, nobody owns, and yet it's causing problems all over the place. You need to have the time to be able to identify that because that's something that's important that is probably not necessarily urgent right now will become urgent if you just ignore it. So that's why I'm pretty sure in the book, and certainly this is very common advice I give to managers is like, you cannot be scheduled all the time. You need to still make time for yourself to think, to turn off the computer, turn off the distractions, look at a whiteboard and just like, think, go through the notes you've been taking all week about what, what's been going on and kind of, you know, reflect to help you identify the important things. Because I think that urgency just is something you often people just like put on themselves. Hmm. It's just it's so yeah. easy to just be reactive all the time. So the other thing about urgency is urgency sometimes happens when you're not delegating effectively. Yes. And you're letting other people give you their problems and you're dealing with their problems for them. 
And can, instead of like giving them advice or, you know, giving them the authority to solve their own problems, they, they can exactly. see something and you're like, oh, I absolutely must solve this. I still do that sometimes, right? Like there, there are times when it's like someone comes to me and I just want to solve their problem for them. <laughs> it's an easy trap to fall into, especially if you've gotten to this rule to help people solve problems. Like, and it's in your sweet spot and you've done the thing maybe a million times before and you know all the nooks and the crannies and you're just like, oh, this is like, ooh, how fun, right? And to your point though, like that reactivity is self-imposed. I think that's such a brilliant insight. We often think that we are at the mercy of, our schedule and our one-on-one meetings and all these things that people are asking our input about because it's other people putting them on us. But in fact, it's so true that it's actually self-imposed that our inability to reflect, to seriously calibrate what is actually indistinguished, what is actually urgent versus important is based off the own expectations that we're setting with our team, our own, the the way that we react to problems when they're being brought to us. So I I so appreciate that insight, Camille. So here's the thing, like I was saying, I have hundreds of questions I could truly ask you. And so what I would love to do is perhaps just end with one, which is what advice in particular would you have for brand new managers, first time managers? If there's like one piece of advice where you're like, okay, if there's nothing else you listen to or nothing else you take away from my book or talks or essays or whatever it is, or maybe, you know, something that you haven't even, like you were saying, you're still coming around on and it's just something that you really, really wish you would have known as a new manager in particular, what might that be? Is it a new manager of people or is it a new manager of a team? Either one. So you, it could be like one or two direct reports or it could be, yeah, you know, 20 person team. And if the advice is different from both, happy to hear both. Well, because I think, you know, like new manager of people, I'm going to give this the advice everyone gives. You have to do one on ones and they're going to be weird at first. You'll get better at it over time um, and soon they won't be weird for you anymore. Hopefully that is yeah. not uh, groundbreaking advice to anyone. Okay. You know, even companies that don't manage well, I think now are finally telling people that. Something that they aren't telling people is for people who find themselves managers of a team, and I wouldn't say a 20-person team, but like a three to five-person team, you're managing a team and you need to make them a team. And uh, that means you need to do things like meet with them together as a team. Talk about what the team is. Talk about what the shared goals of the team are. Get people to work together on things. Get people to understand you know, the team and who's good at what on the team. And that is actually something that people don't hear. And I, I I see, I talk to people a lot that are like, you know, I'm doing such and such. I'm a new manager. I'm doing that and the other. And it's like, when's the last time you, you had a meeting with your team? And they're like, a meeting with my team, like all of us together, like, you know, and, and that is one of those things where I guess like it just, I'm not even sure I put that in my book. Like it didn't even occur to me. I think I've been Mm-hmm. senior management maybe for so long that that kind of thing just it's just like unconscious that I do it sure yeah, yeah. you know but I, I think that making your team a team is actually really important um, when you first start managing you know more than just like onesie twosie people where you're just kind of being an individual mentor and hopefully your manager is making you all a team once you actually have a team of your own you do need to make them a team uh, engineers I think often uh, at a lot of companies, like the way that work is is scheduled is not very collaborative. So it's like, oh, this is my project and I'm going off and doing my project and she has her project and he has his project. Um, and there are a lot of companies where like that's just the way work is done. Yeah. And 
even if your company is that way, still taking the time to make your team a team and bring everyone together to talk about what they're working on on a regular basis is pretty important for having a healthy work environment and being a good manager. So don't forget that step and think about how you make your team a team. And part of that is getting them all together as a team <laughs> to talk to one another on some kind of a regular basis. Sure. I think that's excellent advice, both, but I think the latter in particular, because it sounds so obvious when you say it. And yet, like you were saying, in practice, it's for someone who's new, quite non obvious. I think um, the assumption often is when you're managing people that you're managing people. So you think, oh, Susie, Karen, Mark, right? Let me build my relationship, my rapport. Let me make sure they're doing interesting work. But to your point, the whole purpose is so that the aggregate of Susie, Mark, you know, everyone all together is actually moving everyone forward. And you can't do that if you're not getting everyone to meet together, if they're not aligned around a a common vision, if they don't talk to one another. So thank you for that wonderful reminder. And thank you so much, Camille, in general, for your incredible insights, your advice, your wonderful book, which again, I highly recommend for folks to to pick up if you haven't already. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it's been a blast to have you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. 